The Rare Drug Development Symposium is an interactive global genes event produced in partnership with the Penn Medicine Orphan Disease Center that focuses on educating both beginners and advanced participants on the drug development process. Join us for this year's symposium, June 10th to 11th. An optional pre-conference workshop on June 9th will review the current landscape of rare drug development. This is an opportunity to interact with experts, patients, and advocates in the field and uncover your role in advancing drug therapies. To learn more or register, go to globalgenes.org forward slash RDDS. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Mouse models can play an essential role in allowing researchers to understand and develop drugs to treat rare diseases. Kat Lutz, Senior Director of Mouse Repository and In Vivo Pharmacology Genetic Resource Science at the Jackson Laboratory, researches mice as a model for human neurodegenerative diseases. The lab's Mouse Repository and Rare and Orphan Disease Center today features more than 12,000 unique strains, including more than 1,700 live colonies that are distributed to the scientific community. We spoke to Lutz about the role mouse models play in rare disease research, how new gene editing technologies are changing the development of mouse models, and why new technologies are unlikely to displace their use anytime soon. Kat, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be here today. We're going to talk about your work at the Jackson Laboratory, the role mouse models play in rare disease research and drug development, and how you work with both industry and patient organizations. Perhaps to begin with, we can start with the Jackson Lab itself, which has been around for more than 90 years. For people not familiar with its work, what is it and what does it do? Well, the Jackson Laboratory is a nonprofit research institute. Um, our location is in uh, Bar Harbor, Maine. So it's a lovely area to work. Um, I've been here for, for quite a number of years. And it's, um, you know, just a pleasure to, to interact with all of the researchers here at the lab. We have a, a focus uh, at the Jackson Laboratory on research in mouse genetics and mouse genomics. And so since its inception, uh, the Jackson Laboratory has primarily focused on, on, on working with mice. And, and in that respect too, mouse models of human disease. And so our mission has been steadfast uh, over many, many years. But of course, as uh, technology and science has developed, so have we. And so um, we have gone from a traditional mouse genetics facility and research center to really be now focused in, um, in, in genomics, um, as well as drug efficacy testing and using all the technologies uh, at, our, at our disposal to, to help uh, move this research along. You're a neuroscientist by training. Today, you're a senior director of the Mouse Repository in the In Vivo Pharmacology Services. How did your work lead you there? 
Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. I always had a passion for for neuroscience and and really was was quite drawn both in my undergraduate degree um, and in my graduate work. I, I think I really started working at the Jackson Laboratory and fell into the mouse genetics part of things. And it was a really nice marriage, if you will, between the neuroscience and the mouse genetics. And so from there, I was working on a lot of neurological diseases using mice as a model. Um, for example, epilepsy was uh, one of the areas that I did um, my, my, my graduate degree in. And then over the years, I think genetic engineering uh, just got to be too tempting to, to, to not <laughs> really plunge into. And so looking at various mouse models, not just in neuroscience, but across a number of different therapeutic areas, uh, just seemed to be a, a natural uh, way to, to look at how the Jackson Laboratory could serve its, its mission to the scientific community. And that is to really provide these mouse models um, <clears throat> to the rest of the world. And so in addition to being uh, a premier research institute for, for mouse genetics, we also serve this role as being a mouse resource and repository. So the idea that um, anybody can, can get a mouse uh, you know, that they need to work on and the people uh, possibly in California versus a researcher in Texas versus a researcher in Ohio, could work with the exact same mouse model um, gives a lot of credence to things like rigor and reproducibility. And so the mouse repository portion of that was really what I was drawn into, the, the idea of using genetic engineering to create mouse models, but then also helping to facilitate uh, the biomedical community's research by providing them as a resource for, for, their, for their research. What? And then the pharmacology was, was something that just, um, you know, followed naturally when you have all of these really interesting mouse models of disease, the idea that you want to uh, treat those particular diseases with therapeutics that could be moved from the mouse models to the clinic, uh, for me, was a, was a natural progression as well. Why are mouse models so critical for rare disease drug research and development? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think um, a lot of people don't necessarily see uh, mice as good models for human disease, but in fact, uh, most of the genes are conserved between mice and, and humans being mammals, in fact, at a very high level um, and a high degree of percentage in the, in the DNA. So the idea that the biology in general of uh, the, the pathways and the mechanisms can be better studied sometimes in the mouse than they can be in the human population. And, and the reason for that is mice can be inbred, um, unlike, unlike uh, people. And the idea that you can hold the genetic background of a mouse steady, for example, um, is really a powerful uh, component to research because now the only thing that you're really looking at are mutations and environment. Whereas in people, um, everybody is a little bit of a mix of uh, genetic material coming from multiple generations and, and DNA that's segregating. So in a lot of ways, we're able to simplify uh, human genetics and human disease, if you will, by working in mouse uh, systems. And uh, like I said, the reproducibility is, is pretty interesting when it comes to gene conservation. And then um, I also think the idea that um, you're working with the mammalian system. And so other mammalian systems like non-human primates 
um, and monkeys are, are certainly a very good model for human as well, but they're not as easy to work with. The, the lifespan, the reproductive biology, um, the manipulations are not as easy to do in a mouse. So the mouse over many, many years has become really the ideal organism for, for looking at genetics and studying human disease, um, just for the reasons I just mentioned. It's fast, it's efficient, and there's a lot of uh, technology around mice that has, that has helped in that manner. How predictive are they for neurological disease and, and what are their limitations? Well, I think for neurological diseases, you know, it's always been a little bit um, interesting. Um, it's also been a little bit tough at times as well. Um, when you think about things like neurological diseases that are complex, let's use Alzheimer's for an example. Um, Alzheimer's disease is a complex trait. It's not a single gene um, defect, as we all know. And so studying, you know, complex diseases, um, you know, is, is even harder to do in the patient population. But if you can reduce it to practice in, in a mouse model by manipulating those genetic components that you know are not the whole story, but, you know, part of the story, you can make a lot of progress. I think the other hard thing about neurological diseases is that it's um, sometimes difficult, especially in pediatric neurology, to look at the differences between um, neurodevelopmental uh, issues and problems, those things that happen you know, in utero or perhaps um, in, in development of the, of the embryo. So that can be a little bit harder to, to dissect, but we have a lot of genetic engineering tools that, that help us um, you know, introduce mutations uh, before and after um, embryogenesis. And so that helps with that. And then I think maybe the most challenging thing in the past with neurological disorders and just treating neurological disorders in general has been drugs and therapeutics that will cross the blood-brain barrier. And so if you're looking to treat um, things like epilepsy or other neurological disorders, you know, you have to make sure that the, the, the treatment that you're working with has the ability to cross the blood-brain barrier um, in a way that can be effective. And again, I think some of the technologies that we have um, to, to use at this point that help uh, facilitate that, not just with small molecules and small compounds, but with other uh, vectors, if you will, <clears throat> that can transverse the blood-brain barrier and provide a lot more utility in therapeutic development than we had um, you know, even just five years ago. There are a number of rare conditions where there have been natural, naturally occurring animal models that have really helped advance the development of new therapies. Is there a significant difference in what can be learned from an animal model of a disease that's naturally occurring in that model compared to an animal model where the disease is engineered? I think we always like to you know, think about you know, does the disease occur naturally in, in the animal model that we're looking at? Um, you know, so for example, if you look at macular degeneration, uh, which is a significant uh, problem in the aging population for, for humans, it's sometimes very challenging to, to study that in a mouse model because um, a, a mouse simply just doesn't have a macula to begin with. 
And so, you know, you're looking at physiological differences for sure. Um, but even then, there's so much of the structural biology um, and the physiology that's similar that maybe those types of things could be, you know, considered um, uh, minor hurdles, but they don't necessarily stop you from doing what you need to do using the mouse model. I, I think that naturally occurring, you know, mutations uh, in animal models offer you sometimes a limited um, insight into that particular disease. You know, for example, if you have a dog model or a beagle model, you know, for, for um, ALS or a hearing disorder or a loss, um, it's a trait that's been acquired and, and possibly selected or inbred within that animal model. And so sometimes it's very limiting because it only allows you to see one particular mutation, for example, in age-related hearing loss um, or epilepsy or neuromuscular disease. Whereas in the mouse models, you know, not only can you genetically engineer um, those mutations in, in every gene that you can identify as, is probably causative with that, you can even go down to the different mutation level. And so that I think provides you a broader spectrum of uh, phenotypes and clinical presentations, if you will, that you can study and get maybe a broader picture of how that disease is gonna progress. We're at this amazing time of innovation right now where we're seeing the advent of many new tools for genome editing. Uh, have these tools changed the speed or process of developing mouse models? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I hate to date myself uh, in, in looking back at some of the technologies that we had in the past, but you know, you mentioned spontaneous mouse models or spontaneous mutations. And for, for many years, that's what we used um, to study the diseases. We would find a mouse model um, in our, we would find a mouse, for example, in some of our breeding facilities that was maybe ataxic or that was, you know, um, uh, starting to have seizures when it was handled. and. We would use those spontaneous mutations primarily um, for, for what we would study. Um, I think probably in the early 90s is really when genetic engineering through embryonic stem cells uh, started to, to, to really you know, take hold. And now it was possible you know, to, to look at things a little bit differently. So instead of just studying the genes that presented themselves spontaneously, you can now engineer them. And even then, I think um, the technology wasn't as advanced. It was, um, it was a little tough. You were using embryonic stem cells, you know, mouse embryonic stem cells and manipulating them. Uh, sometimes in the early days, you might consider that only a few select, you know, labs could, could do that kind of work. And then the technology itself was just a little bit time consuming um, and, and clunky. There was a lot of trial and error associated with it and, and a lot of limitations in what you got uh, on the other end of the, of, the, of the mouse model if you were fortunate enough to introduce the mutation that you wanted to. I think with um, CRISPR-Cas9, which is a, a, a genome editing technology that we've really started to use um, in the past um, few years uh, and the advances in that, um, it's the technology is, is almost ridiculously easy in its application. 
it can be used on a variety of you know different genetic backgrounds and inbred backgrounds and so the ability to to create a genetically engineered mouse you know is now something that can be done you know in just a few short weeks when you hear advice given to patient organizations that are interested in advancing research and finding treatments there's a predictable to-do list that includes things like getting a website up, starting a registry in natural history, and often high on that list is developing an animal model or a mouse model. At what point should patient organizations look to that task? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think it's um, you know something that definitely as more patient organizations start to assemble, um, there is uh, definitely the understanding that, that the end goal is a therapeutic the, the quicker they have uh, a mouse model that can recapitulate some of the key um, clinical presentations that would be seen in their patient population, you know, the better off they're gonna be. Um, certainly the things that you mentioned, um, you know, self-assembling, you know, getting a natural history, really understanding, you know, for rare diseases, what the basis of the, um, commonalities and underlying clinical presentations are is, is really critically important. Um, a lot of times these rare diseases are pretty heterogeneous in the way they present. And so sometimes, you know, the patients, you know, from one individual to another look very, very different. But it is important um, in a lot of ways to, to understand what the full spectrum of the, of the clinical presentations are. Not only that you want to, you know, ultimately cure, but sometimes just ameliorate. And so um, I think definitely patient organizations that assemble for the, for the purpose of um, curing their children, or, or at least at the very minimum, you know, finding a treatment, um, very quickly now recognize that animal models that can help in the research not just to understand the disease itself, but to actually be a model for testing directly therapeutics. Um, if you had a mouse model, for example, that had epilepsy and you were looking for a therapeutic, um, you know, to treat that particular disease, um, you would wanna genetically engineer that precise genetic mutation into the gene that is causative in your patient population. And then if the mouse model that you genetically engineered um, also had epilepsy, like you saw in your patient population, now you have you know, a very uh, promising model to help um, test different therapeutics to say, you know, is this particular therapeutic going to be helpful um, in the amelioration um, of, of that particular epileptic phenotype? So they're, they're quite powerful tools. And I think that most rare patient um, disease organizations understand that they're working with a small population of, of, of individuals and getting FDA approval um, for particular therapeutics is gonna require a concerted effort um, you know, through research to have outcome measures that are gonna be convincing enough you know, for the FDA, you know, to approve a clinical trial. Um, and, and a lot of the times that convincing data comes from the mouse models themselves. And how expensive is this to do to develop a mouse model if you're a patient organization? 
Well, you know, it's a lot less expensive than it used to be. <laughs> I'll say, I'll say that. Um, you know, the the genetic engineering approaches that I mentioned with CRISPR-Cas9 um, have really been reduced to practice and and a pipeline approach. I think making the mouse model um, itself is is not very expensive. I think the research that is that goes into characterizing the mouse model um, is, is where you know, some of the expense can come in. I think it requires a team of people, um, not just one particular laboratory, but a team of individuals who are committed to working together to advance the understanding of the mouse model as quickly as possible. Um, you know, Having one individual uh, working on the characterization of a mouse model can be slow and, and time translates into dollars. And, and I don't think that's really what a lot of these patient uh, communities are looking for. So the idea of creating consortiums um, and individuals who can take the making of the mouse model in a pipeline approach, getting it characterized as much as we possibly can and then having the specialists you know, come in who, who work on that particular disease area or specialize you know, either clinically or in a research uh, uh, component, um, you know, really is the key, I think, to success that is both um, efficient uh, in terms of time and money um, and, and has the best chance of success. Once a, a model is created, what's got to be done to sustain it and share it with researchers? Yeah, I think that this is where the Jackson Laboratory, you know, really shines uh, in its research mission. Um, you know, not only do we have the capabilities of genetically engineering these mouse models, it really is our mission to uh, provide these to, to researchers around the world. We have over um, 12,000 strains of mice that we've acquired um, with various uh, uh, genetic mutations or spontaneous mutations um, genetically engineered you know, inbred strains, you know, you name it, I think we are probably the largest um, repository for mouse models. And so um, we also have recognized that the advancement of therapeutics for any disease um, is really hampered by the accessibility of resources. And so um, in addition to all the great research that goes on at the Jackson Laboratory, we're really very well known for the distribution of our mouse models in a resource component. So we have, uh, you know, a catalog, <laughs> if you will, um, that uh, individual researchers who can, um, who are working on a particular disease can simply call an order um, and have that mouse model, you know, delivered to their vivarium so that they can conduct the research. And, um, it doesn't involve a collaboration. Um, it doesn't involve um, a lot of paperwork or legal documentation. Um, it's simply um, there to try to be as efficient as possible um, in terms of getting these resources into the hands of the people um, who can use them best. In that regard, how unique is what the Jackson Lab does? I, I think it's pretty unique. Um, you, you do definitely see the, the model uh, of, a, of, a, of a mouse repository um, is, is definitely mimicked around the world. Um, you see mouse repositories, for example, in the European Union, you see them in Asia. Um, but I think the Jackson Laboratory was definitely the first. Um, and a lot of uh, uh, individual repositories around the world have really 
worked to mimic um, this idea of availability, of efficiency, um, and resource sharing, which, um, you know, if imitation is the best form of flattery, I think that we um, could consider ourselves um, uh, very well thought of. And, and I think it's important, um, you know, to have these resources in different, in different countries. Although I should say that we also have really tight um, communications with these individuals around the world, you know, to make sure that we're not necessarily duplicating resources either. And so um, the Jackson Laboratory um, distributes mouse models, not just to the scientific community in the United States, um, but all across the European Union, um, different countries, including Asia. Um, and we even have a facility now that we're opening in China so that we can better serve uh, that community as well. You've been involved in the creation of many mouse models. I, I thought as a practical example, you could discuss the work you did with the SMA Foundation and the role that mouse model played in the development of the first therapy for the neurodegenerative condition. For listeners not familiar with spinal muscular atrophy, what is it and how does it manifest itself and progress? Yeah, spinal muscular atrophy is, is really a very devastating pediatric disease um, with a relatively high incidence uh, in the population almost as high as cystic fibrosis. Um, you don't necessarily hear a lot about spinal muscular atrophy. You didn't hear a lot about spinal muscular atrophy is because most of the babies that are born with SMA um, usually die before they're about two years of age. There's varying degrees of severity in SMA, but essentially it's a, it's a neurological disease, very much like Lou Gehrig's disease where motor neurons <clears throat> in, the, in the body gradually die. Um, so babies that are normally born healthy um, or somewhat healthy lose their ability um, to have basic functions. Most of those babies never, never sit. Um, some babies will sit but never stand. And the most severe um, babies, we, we usually, they were at first described as floppy baby syndrome. Um, because their muscle tone and their overall weakness um, was, so, was so great. At the end of their, their lifespan, the, the motor neurons um, stop innervating the muscles, um, usually resulting in the uh, inability for those children to breathe. And so most of the, most of the children with SMA will die of respiratory arrest. Um, and so again, it looks very much like I think ALS and Lou Gehrig's disease in, in babies, I think is the best way to describe it. And what was the work you did and how did it impact the development of Spinraza, the antisense therapy that would become the first approved therapy for the condition? Yeah, I think, you know, SMA was, was, was a huge success story. And I think, you know, um, a lot of individuals, including the National Institute of Health, um, recognize that because of the genetics of SMA, um, there were a number of potential therapeutics that one could develop, um, you know, that might have a chance at, at working in the clinic. And so it was, it was an approach with therapeutics that had a lot of shots on goal. Um, and those shots on goal were antisense oligonucleotides that corrected the genetic mutation at the DNA level. They were um, gene therapy where the missing protein was then replaced um, using a AAV uh, vector-based system. 
And then there were lots of other small molecules um, that were uh, involved in, again, um, altering the splicing of that particular gene. So when you think about you know, one disease with multiple opportunities for, ther for therapeutics, it was, it was extremely attractive. Um, I think that the thing that did accelerate Spinraza and in addition to a number of other FDA approved drugs now for SMA were the mouse models. Um, not only the mouse models that were developed by Arthur Burgess um, at Ohio State, but those that were improved upon you know, in different areas um, and including the ones that we had here at the Jackson Laboratory. Um, the, the biggest contribution I think that we made was really being pivotal in the dissemination of those mouse models. And, you know, we distributed those models to researchers, you know, by the thousands. And um, it wasn't necessarily um, uh, a resource that was difficult to come by because they were at Jack's, they were at the Jackson Laboratories and anybody could, could get them. Um, we also, in addition to creating uh, some of the mouse models and distributing the mouse models that were already in existence, we started doing a lot of drug efficacy testing um, on those mouse models because we had them and we have incredible resources here in terms of being able to, um, you know, really work on, on these mouse models in ways that may be prohibitive to a, an academic institution. Our mouse breeding facilities as well as our capabilities are, are pretty fantastic. I, I often refer to the Jackson Laboratory as sort of this mini hospital for mice um, where any diagnostic treatment or readout that you need to have um, can, can, can occur. So in that way, I think, you know, the, the making of the mouse models, the distribution of the mouse models, the characterization of the mouse models, um, and then ultimately the, the testing of a lot of the drugs, um, you know, really kind of came you know, all together to, you know, to help facilitate some of what we now have as Spinraza, um, Nusinersen, and, and some of the other FDA-approved drugs now for SMA. As new technology emerges and through a combination of organ-on-a-chip technology, organelles, lab-grown organs, or artificial intelligence, do you ever imagine mouse models being replaced? No, no, I don't think so. Um, you know, I, I would say that through throughout the, the years, throughout the decades, there's always been advancements in either cell-based biology or lower model organisms. So, you know, a lot of the work that we do for pharmacology and drug testing, you know, actually occurs first in cell lines. Um, and then sometimes we'll work in uh, Drosophila, uh, fruit flies, and sometimes we'll work in zebrafish or C. elegans. And these are lower model organisms that um, aren't mammalian in nature, but still can provide you with a, with a lot of information. And organoids um, are, are now another variation of that, which, um, you know, go beyond obviously just cell lines, but, you know, you know, have the, the composite around them to, to really be, as they say, organs on a chip or organoids in, in their structure. So they represent a, an incredible advancement and a tool that certainly the scientific community is going to use. I think though, at the end of the day, you want an intact in vivo system. Um, you know, you still have to connect 
you know, the liver with the rest of the body, you know, to the heart, to the brain, uh, to the vasculature system. And so when we think about, you know, the, the disease in its totality, you know, you have to think about the whole organism. And when you think about therapeutics in their totality, you know, you have to think about biodistribution and various cell types that it's going to hit. So I think that all of these technologies are hugely helpful and beneficial, um, but I don't necessarily think that one replaces the other. Kat Lutz, Senior Director of Mouse Repository and In Vivo Pharmacology Genetic Resource Science at the Jackson Laboratory. Kat, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.